you would open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis 3. It's page 2 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seat rack in front of you. And I would invite all of you to open a copy of the Scriptures for yourself so you can see it as we work through this passage together. And to those of you who may be newer to historic Christianity, who some of you would say, you know what, I don't even own a Bible, uh, you are welcome to take the one from the seat rack in front of you and make it your own. Uh, we would love for you to have a copy so that you can read it anytime you choose and uh, come to see and know the God who reveals himself to us in this Bible. You know, the New York Times on Wednesday profiled an environmental activist lobbying for, quote, voluntary human extinction, comparing the man's personality to that of the gentle children's host, Mr. Rogers. You see the headline there, don't you? Earth now has 8 billion humans. This man wishes there were none. The article features Les Knight, who is pictured there, the founder of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Their goal is an earth without people. Beyond advocating for universal access to birth control and opposing what he calls reproductive fascism, that's a popular term today, isn't it? Or the lack of freedom to not procreate, uh, Mr. Knight says that despite our many achievements, humans are a net detriment to the earth. May we live long and die out. I know some of you chuckle when you read that and just think, really? But I wonder if that's how some of you feel. I don't mean that you are ready to join with less night and seek human extinction, but if you were really honest that you would say this morning, I feel like my life is a net detriment to earth. Maybe you've lost your way, so to speak, or you've lost your sense of purpose, or so many around you, whether it be family or friends, have just spoken hard words to you saying, you are worthless, you're such an inconvenience. Do you know what kind of trouble you've brought to my life? I wish I had never married you. I wish you had never been born to me. All kinds of messages that can actually make us feel like we're nothing more than a net detriment. Your failed relationships, a failed marriage, your failed parenting, your failed morality, that all equates to net detriment. You know, as we've been working through these early chapters of Genesis, though, God has a different message for us. And the reality is, you are not a net detriment to the world you're a part of. Despite what some people may have said to you, you are not a net detriment. We've seen in the first three chapters of Genesis that the world we live in is actually the good product of the sovereign God who by his powerful word spoke it all into existence. And when he did, he's the one who said it's very good. A sky above teeming with life, land that spreads out around this globe teeming with life, seas that are full teeming with life. Everything that God spoke into existence was very good, very abundant, very rich, magnificent in every way, and you as a human being are actually the pinnacle of his creation because you, unlike all the other life on planet Earth and in the universe for that matter, were created in his image. That means you bear a striking resemblance to the God who created you. Your spirituality, your morality, even your, even your physical body though God himself is a spirit and does not live in a body. 
all of that reflects his greatness and his glory. You are not the product of random evolutionary developments through the eons of time. You are here by the express will and good pleasure of God Almighty. So how did it turn into this insanity where we would actually have some who are in such a, a grip of, of, of this delusion that they are nothing more than a net detriment to planet Earth? I, I actually sorrow for this gentleman. That, that he's reached a point where he feels like his life actually stands in the way of Earth being all that it could be. He's either never heard this message or he has turned away from it or forgotten it, but I think what, what have we done to ourselves as a human race that we've so devalued our identity that we would actually think this world would be better if none of us were here? Well, let's look at what God says to us in his word as we continue to make our way through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We come today to the, to the verses in chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, that actually begin to open a door of hope for us. And there's a, a powerful work and message of both rescue and remedy for sin. Adam and his wife have made the, the tragic choice to form an alliance with the serpent, the devil. They have bought into his lies and they have acted in rebellion. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at what they did and, be, and we began to look at the consequences of their sin. But now the Lord enters the story again in a very proactive way and uh, it, it is glorious. So you follow along as I read Genesis 3, 14 and following. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this extraordinary portion of Scripture. We know that you have prepared for us truth that transforms us, opens for us doors of hope and expectation, calls us to step through those doorways by faith and to look for a victorious descendant, someone who, unlike these first parents, would choose righteousness, would obey your law perfectly, 
would grow in strength and power and would declare his hostility against the serpent and all of those who are allied with him. But not just of hostility, a wartime mentality, but this one who would actually overturn all that the sin of this first man and woman had brought upon the world. We know with time and the additional books of the Bible that this one is Jesus. And as we enter this Advent season in the coming weeks, oh, would you so clarify our understanding and sharpen our vision that we would see this great rescuer and redeemer for all that he is. That we would be changed by his person, changed by his redemptive work, changed by the hope and expectation of his soon return. Let us see Jesus and let it, let it begin this morning. We pray in your high and holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll go back to verse eight with me and notice, if you will, how God begins to accomplish this rescue of sinners. And just this is quick review. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first seven verses where God steps in to bring a conviction of sin. Matt touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Conviction of sin is a, is a gift. And when God begins to bring that weight of guilt to rest upon our souls, that is a good thing. It's actually the first part of his rescue operation. The four questions that God asked of this man and this woman are designed to get them thinking, even when he says, where are you? It's not that he's lost them geographically. He actually wants to begin them to think about where they have taken themselves by their choices. They're alienated from God. That's, a, that's actually where they are. And then he says, who told you that you were naked? After they begin to speak a little bit, there's, a, there's an underlying fear and even a weight of guilt that's on them. And he asks them in verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He knows they have. He wants them to own it and say, yes, we have done this. He wants them to feel the weight of that guilt and own it. And finally, because they are under the curse, he asks in verse 13, what is this that you have done? Even though we looked last week at how sin always has a, a rational appeal to it, it makes sense in the moment of temptation. What doesn't make sense is the horrific consequence that will result from our sin. So he's bringing a conviction of sin. And then as we were reading in this passage, beginning in verse 14, he begins to pronounce a curse because of sin. And God's curse is God's judgment on those who are actually guilty of an offense. Now, it's interesting in this passage that the term curse appears twice, and the first is with reference to the serpent, and then God says to Adam, the ground itself is cursed because of you, but he doesn't actually say directly to them, you are cursed. Now, it's true that the curse spreads around the world, and they will feel the dread consequences of this, but strictly speaking, the curse is given against the serpent and the ground. But these two are not spared the impact of the curse, and neither are you or I. Then God declares the consequences of sin, and this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. And I shared with you last week, and, and I want to remind you again, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your own consequences. 
And what we see unfold here could be described as a perpetual struggle between good and evil at a high level. It's also a perpetual sorrow that enters the world. And we're going to describe that through the, the biblical terms here in just a moment. There's this perpetual disruption of human relationships. And there's a perpetual strain that, that enters life. It's not the way God designed it, but it is the consequence of sin. Let's talk, first of all, about the consequences for the woman. Look at verse 16 with me, if you will. God begins to speak directly to the woman and says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That term pain can also be translated as sorrow. Yes, it refers to physical pain, but it actually goes beyond that. There's an increased sorrow, and it's interesting that the particular point at which this sorrow and pain appears is in her pregnancy. It's the, it's, the, it's the woman's unique gift and capacity from God. Men can't be pregnant. It's another just mind-boggling thing that there is a conversation in our culture that, first of all, you can, you can pick your own gender, and then regardless of your biology, if you decide you want to be pregnant, you can be. It's just not true. It's a lie that actually reminds me of that old children's fairy tale, the emperor has no clothes. Somebody needs to step into culture, and thankfully there are many voices who do right now that say, no, that, that's not the way it is. So this is the woman's unique gift and capacity from God, and now God says because of your sin, you're gonna experience a perpetual sorrow, even in the special thing I designed you for. There's a second thing, look at the text, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. That term desire appears in a couple of different ways, and I, I do want to pause and kind of let you or explore some of the ways we could understand it, because the translators of the English Standard Version, which is kind of the, the most common preaching text we have here, but I think most of your English versions would do something similar. Your desire will, will be for your husband. But what does that mean? There really are two specific options if you explore additional scriptures. One would be such as is referenced in the Song of Solomon 7, chapter 7, verse 10, where we read, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And that's a good thing. It's a romantic thing, if you will, a loving thing, a desire for intimacy. That's what's being expressed here. That would be an option. But I think the context of Genesis 3 points us a little different direction, and that has to do with a desire for control. You can see that appear if you skipped over to Genesis 4 and watched the temptation of Cain unfold in particular, where the Lord says to him, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It desires to control you, to dominate you. I think that's actually what the Lord is getting at with, with the woman here. They were created in a perfect partnership. She is the perfect completer for him. That's where we get the term complementarian. She's the perfect complement to him, created for partnership, created to be shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart, soul to soul, if you will, going forward in the work that God has given. But now sin has shifted that. And her desire is to be in charge. Any of you ladies struggle with that? Especially when, if you were really honest, you say, I'm married to a nitwit. He's just dumb and doesn't even know he's dumb. And I could run this house so much better than he does, or I could be in charge and do a better job. You probably could. But some of that urge to take control is rooted in this. One author 
states it this way, the woman's urge is not a craving for her man, whatever he demands, but an urge for independence, indeed a desire to dominate her husband. Well, that brings us to the next part, which is somewhat terrifying. He shall rule over you. He will actually have an exercise and exercise dominion over you. And it does seem that the terminology here, and as you would see it used throughout the, the scriptures from this point, often refers to a harsh, again as one author writes, a harsh, exploitive subjugation. And I agree with this author who goes on to write, which so often characterizes woman's lot in all sorts of societies. Woman's life is blighted at the most profound level. They were created to be like this. Sin puts them like this. It's hard, isn't it? But this is part of God's kindness to actually let the weight of what our sin does rest on our souls. Thankfully, he's not gonna leave us here, so take heart. But these are some of the consequences that the woman is going to experience. And these are the consequences that every woman, young, old, married, single alike, experiences to this day. Well, there are consequences for the man And the Lord begins this in verse 17 by saying, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Well, there's so much we could go here, but remember from chapter one how when God speaks, all of these things happen. And it's it's a sovereign word, it's a powerful word, it's a good word. And and one of the big points of Genesis one and two is when God speaks, pay attention, great stuff is gonna happen. Trust his word, obey his word, believe his word, all of that. But, But Adam stood in passivity in that moment of temptation. Why didn't he speak up when the serpent enters that dialogue with the woman? It's interesting that God doesn't say here because you have listened to the voice of the serpent because you've listened to the voice of the woman. And and let's not abuse this men by saying, see, women should just know their place. Stand in the corner and keep silent. No, that's actually not the, the Lord's point here either. But as God begins to confront him, one of the first consequences he speaks of is his own sorrow. Now, it's unique to him, and he uses the term pain. It's the same terminology that we have seen just one verse before. And, and Eve was uniquely created as, a, as a, a woman who would have the joy and privilege of bringing children into the world. So she's oriented, if you will, toward childbearing and And the man has an orientation toward the work. Doesn't mean that the woman never works. But he works with a little different point of focus. Now notice this, in pain you shall eat. That is, in sorrow you will eat. The ground will actually begin to resist the dominion of man. And thorns and thistles will grow. So there's sorrow and there's also going to be opposition. There's going to be resistance. And men, whether it be the office or your backyard, there's always stuff that resists you. And that's what the roundup on my shelf in the garage is all about. I'm fighting weeds, and so are you. 
And those weeds emerge in all kinds of ways. It's a consequence of our sin. Sorrow in our uniquely designed capacity to work as a reflection of God's dominion on planet Earth. There's going to be opposition. Then there's also going to be struggle because he says by the sweat of your face. And sweat emphasizes how hard Adam will have to work. And isn't it interesting that he kind of stood back in the critical moment of temptation, passively observing, just listening, taking it all in, listening to the, to the voice of his wife, And God had called him and even created him to be active as an image bearer. And so now God's calling him back to work, but he's going to say, you are going to struggle all your days. You're going to learn to be active and not be passive. It's still a temptation for us, isn't it? And then notice finally the duration till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's always going to be this way, Adam. Ugh, really? Some of you have hit the retirement years, and so you're not, you're not putting in the 40, 50, 60 hours a week for the company or the business that you used to be, but are you, are you any less busy? I've never heard a retiree you know, describe life you know, just suddenly got, got real simple and easy. I frequently hear retirees say, I'm busier now than I've ever been. I don't, I don't even know how I could work full, a full-time job and do all the stuff that I'm having to do now. You know, it just doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It's going to require sweat. There's going to be opposition and resistance, and it's always going to be that way. Poor Adam. Do you know what that meant for him? Because the Bible goes on to tell us he lived for 930 years. You think you've had a long, hard life? If Adam were here, he, he, would, he would laugh. Oh, you poor people. Let me tell you about a long, hard life. Oh, the consequences are hard and they are heavy. And I love the words of Victor Hamilton, his commentary on the book of Genesis. He writes, far from being a reign of co-equals over the remainder of God's creation, the relationship now becomes a fierce dispute with each party trying to rule the other. The two who once reigned as one attempt to rule each other. This passage explains a lot about our world, doesn't it? And it's not just individuals trying to rule one another in the context of marriage or family or personal relationships like this. I mean, it's one political party trying to rule the others. It's one nation or alliance trying to rule the others. One dictator trying to control a people group. Think of all the examples of fierce disputes that are raging on planet Earth right now. It's no wonder that our friend that I alluded to at the very outset would say, this world would be better if there were no humans on it. Maybe, if this is what we're left with, if this is what we're reduced to, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. And it feels kind of desperate at this point. That's part of God's point. How could this ever be remedied? Well, it will be. Go back to verse 15 with me, and I know I skipped over a few things, but God's promises become the real basis for hope. God himself is promising to remedy this great sin of ours. It's not just the, man, the first man and woman who sinned and put it all in motion. We're just kind of helpless victims now. No, we've contributed to it. We've participated with them. But notice with me, if you will, in verses 15 to 18, there are a series of I will statements and you shall. Oh, I love these. These are God's promises of a personal work. He's going to step in. He's not just barking instructions saying, you know, you ought to, or it'd be great if you would. No, first of all, he's saying, I will put enmity between 
the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. I will surely multiply some things in verse 16. You shall bring forth children, verse 16b. And verse 17, you shall eat of it. You shall eat bread, verse 18. Those are God's sovereign I wills and you shalls. And in a similar, a way similar to his sovereign creative word in chapter one, this too is a powerful word. We saw in Genesis one and two, the creative word of God was irresistibly powerful. And in Genesis three, when he pronounces a curse against the serpent and on the ground, that too is irresistibly consequential. But it is also true that the, if I can describe it this way, the remedial word, the word that will remedy this, it too is irresistibly powerful. In a sense, God's rolling up his sleeves and in one sense looking at his his beloved man and woman that he created and saying, you've made a mess of things, but there's good news. Rolls up his sleeves and says, I'm going to work and let me tell you about the work. So let's dig in a little deeper. He's not only promising a personal work, but what does that include? Well, he promises a transforming conversion. Go back to verse 15 and look at this with me. The first great I will is this. I will put enmity Look at, look at this, verse 15, he's speaking specifically to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We touched on this before, but let me remind you again that the word enmity is not just you know, some fear of snakes and reptiles. Oh, I saw, I've told you before, I hate snakes. Hate him, hate him, hate him. And a few of you have even said, you know, it'd be really funny if we just you know, put a rubber snake somewhere and surprised you with it. It would not. We would cease to be friends. I might even pray imprecatory prayers down on your head. And there are plenty of examples in the Psalms that I could turn to and say, see there, that is the word of the Lord. See how David prayed against his enemies? That's not what we're talking about here. There's something greater that is underway. God himself is saying that I'm actually gonna create hostility in your soul in this work of God that is underway. There has to be a fundamental transformation. One of my favorite teachers, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, taught through this very passage. He's written a great book titled Beginning at Moses. And in that book, Mike Barrett writes of this change of relationship to the serpent that is marked by, here's the quote, an awakened conscience that recognized the lie of the serpent and attracted the heart of this man and woman back to God. See, they didn't didn't just make a little goof of a mistake. They actually rebelled against God, disobeyed his word, and formed an alliance with the serpent. At this moment, they're still in that alliance. And if God doesn't intervene and and transform their hearts, their minds, their souls at a basic level, they'll remain in that alliance for as long as they live. And God is saying, I'm actually gonna create hostility between you. I'm busting up this alliance of evil. And I'm gonna win their hearts. I'm gonna bring them back to my side, to my side righteousness to my word. Another author writes, God wants man to continue in undying opposition to this evil one and he rouses the enmity himself. You and I would never become the allies of God unless he worked in us. Do you know the Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel? 
It's a long book. It's a complicated book in some ways. Even portions that I would say, they're bizarre. But it's well worth reading. It's well worth reading because you will come across passages like this in Ezekiel 36 where God speaks through that Old Testament prophet and says, I will sprinkle clean water on my people and they shall be clean from all their uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And then listen to this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's another way of describing this transformation that God is promising to the first man and the first woman. Oh, he's speaking it directly to the serpent, but they're within earshot apparently. There's a fundamental change of heart that God promises to work, and that's what distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world, if it were writing this story, would basically put the divine character in the position of saying to these people, you blew it, do better, earn your way back to me. And then the divine figure would step back and say, let's see how this goes. But the God of the Bible is so different that's not his strategy. He enters the, the rebellion of this moment, actually steps into the middle of the alliance and begins to speak to the one party, the serpent, and kind of backing him into his own corner and beginning to separate the man and woman from him and saying, hey, you, I'm gonna work in such a way that these two will not just like, be on my side unwillingly, but they're gonna have a change of, of nature, a change of heart. They will form an alliance with me and, and then there's more to it that we'll, we'll come to in just a moment. But God himself is the one who says, I'll work a change. My friend, if you are in a dark spot, spiritually speaking, God is not saying to you, clean up your act and then come to me. Oh, he wants to change you and will call you to turn your back on your sin. We call that repentance. He will call you to exercise your faith in him. But he's the one with the power to work this transforming conversion here's the next part that we see in verse 15 there's a promise of a victorious descendant look again at verse 15 he that is the offspring of the woman shall bruise your head isn't it interesting that suddenly we're faced with a singular masculine pronoun he well who is this he and what is this bruising well, the bruising God speaks of here is actually a fatal crushing. Some of your English translations may reflect that. The serpent himself is subject to death, and for him it will be a violent end. One of the videos I, I saw this week, I started to refer to this just a moment ago, but didn't finish that little story. Got caught up in the fact that I hate snakes. Um, the guy's just sitting there minding his own business, and a snake slithers out of like the, the little shrubbery beside him and is suddenly like coming for his feet. This is like my nightmare. Like, see, this happens, and it's, it's there. It's on videotape. Or videotape, that's old. <laughs> you young people, do you know what a videotape is? Of course you don't. And suddenly the snake is under his feet, and then that guy sees it. I mean, he just begins this stomping frenzy. The problem is they cut the tape, the, the video at that particular point, couldn't see how the thing ended. I'm like, did the guy get bit? Did the snake die? The snake should have died. He deserved to die. And God is saying to the serpent, you're dead. There's one coming, a particular offspring. 
of this woman. God was not specific in saying which son born to this woman would do it, and as we continue to read the story, we wonder, is it Cain? Is it Abel? Tragically, neither one of those. Seth was born to this man and woman. Maybe it's Seth. You know, the devil, in one sense, was left to fear every son born of a woman until Mary gave birth to Christ. The question was finally answered. I love what Colossians 2 tells us of this victorious descendant. Similar to what Matt read earlier from Ephesians 2, Colossians 2.13 says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross was the first great deadly blow against the serpent. Now there's another one coming in Revelation 20 speaks of that when the final judgment is made and as the Apostle John records, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's a violent crushing and what glory it will be when our great adversary, the ancient serpent, is finally put under the heel of Christ and destroyed. Well, this is the victorious descendant that God says will come into the world. And now, as we continue into verse 16, and we look at those you shalls from a little different perspective, God is actually promising a future life. See, the the man and the woman are coming into this conversation fully expecting God to say, you're dead right now. I told you that the day you would eat of that fruit, you would surely die. But if you read this from a little different perspective and then see how God carries this thing, you recognize they're not gonna die on this day. God is actually promising them future generations. Yes, even though he says to the woman, you shall bring forth children through that sorrowful pregnancy, through the pain of that, you will bring children, and it's plural. Well, that means they're gonna live at least a couple more years. And similarly, God says to the man, you shall eat bread. And yes, he's going to earn bread by the sweat of his brow, but God is promising to him that the crops that he's going to sow will be harvested, and then that grain will be milled and vegetables brought to the table. So here again, there's there's a duration of time that's beginning to open up for them. And they realize that this is not, in fact, the day where we die. God is showing mercy to us. Well, that opens a a powerful door for us to see how God begins to remedy the consequences. And the first thing he is doing here is actually giving them reason to hope and renewing their faith. By his grace and mercy, do they deserve to die at that moment? Absolutely, but that's not what God is giving them. Now, to this point in the series, I've avoided using the second name that we're about to discover in this passage for the woman. Because up until this point, she's just the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman. And actually, Adam had given her her first name, and in the Hebrew, it's Isha. His name is Ish, man. She's the woman, Isha. But now look at what verse 20 shows us. And, And this is not just like little information that God slips in here at this point. It's tied into what he has just said to the man and woman who expected, this is the day we die. No, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
Moses wrote this book, right? So he's actually inserting a little explanatory note. Why that name? What does that name mean? And if you look back and, and read the Hebrew, you would see it's just a little simple word that just means living. Do you know just a few verses before this? In the account of the story, Adam had referred to her as the woman you gave me. Remember that scene? God comes to him. Adam, what is this that you have done? Uh, the woman. I mean, he's really pointing fingers two different directions. The woman you gave me. That's a man who doesn't want to accept responsibility for his sin, right? Hey, it's not my fault. First of all, I can blame her, but you're actually responsible for her, so I'm doubly off the hook, right? Well, that's, that's absurd. You know, that conversation actually was an ugly moment of self-righteous blame shifting. That's what we could call what Adam did in that moment of confrontation when God asked him, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? But do you see this, this conversion? This transformation is already underway because the promises that God has given to the man and the woman are already beginning to take root in this man's heart and now he looks at this woman with a different set of eyes and sees her not as, as some kind of liability to him. He, he no longer views her as the greatest detriment in his little world that should be eliminated, but now because of the gracious promise of God, she becomes the greatest asset and he recognizes that not only are the two of them gonna live together, but through her womb, this promised victor descendant will come. And so this newfound faith, if you will, and this new hope that is emerging in his heart overflows in a new name for his wife. Oh, what a powerful thing it is. He will never look at her the same. She deserves a new name. They will not die on that day. They will live to see another sunrise. If you do a little quick math, and we don't know when this happened, how old were they, how many days had they, or years had they been on planet Earth. God doesn't tell us those things, but just thinking somewhat generally, if Adam lived to be 930 years old, think of how many sunrises lie ahead of him. Do some quick math, it's over 339,000. And not just that they're going to live, but through this woman, an offspring is coming. She is not the greatest detriment to his world like he thought just a little while before. The promise of God being worked out through her is his greatest hope. God is renewing their faith. There's a second thing he's doing. He's restoring their dignity. Look at verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Here again, God goes to work, but now he makes something that covers their nakedness and shame. Remember, they, they quickly fashioned primitive clothing. Loincloths is how we translate the Hebrew term there. And they, and they grabbed fig leaves. It sounds primitive because it is primitive. Just like our attempts to to become righteous enough through our own works, through our own obedience, as if we could somehow clothe ourselves, spiritually speaking, and make ourselves acceptable before God and acceptable before one another. They couldn't and we can't. So God, again, goes to work and he now makes something that covers their nakedness and shame. And that little phrase, clothed them, is a term, and, and it's, it, it can be translated in, in and is, in fact, through the Old Testament in rather generic ways. But there are a couple of 
portions of, of scripture where it actually describes what a king like Pharaoh did for Joseph as he brings him out of prison and exalts him to second in command. He clothes him in royal attire. That's in Genesis 41. When you come to the book of Exodus, it's the term that is used repeatedly to describe what Moses did for Aaron and his sons as he clothed them in their priestly garments. It's God at work in a spectacular way, and this couple will never recover their innocence. They will always know good and evil, and there will be ongoing perpetual sorrow and struggle through life, but through the grace and mercy of God, they can have their dignity restored, knowing that they need not stand in shame and fear before God or one another at this point. The restoration of dignity means two things. God will remove their temporary fig leaf loincloths and he will provide an appropriate, durable, and I would say beautiful garment. Everything else God has made at this point has been spectacular, right? Why would we expect that these would be like primitive, you know, like the clothing of cavemen? Well, we read the word skins, but some of you wore skins into church today, right? You, you have a finely crafted leather coat, and, and nobody looks at you as if you're some sort of primitive human being. God doesn't do anything primitively. There's a little bit of foreshadowing here, though, isn't there? The restoration of our dignity, like Adam's and Eve's, comes at the cost of another living being. In time, the promised son will become the sacrificial animal who is scourged and beaten and stripped bare and nailed to the cross so that you and I might be forgiven our sins and the real guilt so that you and I might be restored in right relationship to God, no longer fearing alienation and clothed, not in primitive spiritual garments, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. What a gift. Isaiah 53 records the great cost to this promised one. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The pain of pregnancy, the pain of work, earning bread by the sweat of our brow and all other forms of pain and sorrow that sin has brought into the world. Yet we esteemed him to be stricken and smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned like the first man and woman, everyone to his own way. Yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a rescue. What a remedy. In Jesus, you are no longer a detriment to planet Earth. In Jesus, your every sin is forgivable. In Jesus, your every rebellious thought, word, or act can be removed. In Jesus, your dignity and value are redeemed and your life restored, but only in him. In Genesis 3.15, 
becomes this great launching pad for the rest of the story. And that's, that's what takes us all the way to Revelation. It actually sets the stage for Christmas. And so we anticipate as we read from Genesis all the way through Malachi, every son who is born to a woman, we say, is this the one? Is this the one? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Certainly not Judah. Is it David? Is it Solomon? We ask that question thousands of times until the promised one appears. And when he appeared, as Hebrews said, he appeared to destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. So the rescue begins. The remedy is on the way. From their perspective, the Redeemer will come, and from ours, the Redeemer has come. That's a reason to hope. That's a reason to believe. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, you were promised long ago, and you came. And as you came, you made our sins and failures your very own. You are the true son of Eve, born for hostility born to crush the ancient serpent and to cure our sin, born to die the death we earned by our sin, born that we might live a life we forfeited, born to be nailed to the cross, that the record of our sin and that the debt and guilt it created might be canceled for all time. Thank you for owning our sin. Thank you for owning our guilt. Thank you for owning our shame, even physical nakedness as you hung on the cross. Thank you for owning our alienation as you were separated from the Father and forsaken. Thank you. And with our first parents who looked forward to Calvary, we look back and we say, oh Lord God, we believe. We praise your name and give you our thanks, for you are our only rescue and remedy for sin. Father, thank you that in Christ you have restored our hope and you have restored our dignity. And our prayer as we conclude this time together is that you would make the work of this rescue and redemption real to each person here. Thank you for this marvelous backstory of Christ's birth. And in the coming weeks, as we celebrate the nativity of our Lord, would you open our hearts in new and fresh ways that we may marvel that the Redeemer has come, the victorious descendant has appeared, the offspring of the woman promised long ago has put the ancient serpent under his foot. Give us great joy and faith We pray in Jesus' name, amen.